Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome over to Product. We are back here with part two with Brett Queener from Bonfire Ventures. Um, Today, we're going to talk about Brett's background as an investor and what he looks for in products. So why don't we start that? As an investor, Brett, what do you look for in a product? Well, it's kind of like when I met you guys at Pendo. <laughs> there was four or five of you, right? Look, I invest at, it, so at Bonfire, we invest at seed stage, right? And we are generally the first institutional check. And so we're putting in somewhere between one and a half to two and a half million dollars in a three million plus round to get the company, to work with the company to where it can successfully raise a series A and have north of a million ARR. So when we invest, there has to be product. And no surprise, I'm a big fan in product led. So when I look at a product or a company and they're kind of the same at seed stage, it's basically a team and a product and an idea. The first thing I look for is what is the problem that you're solving? Is this a large problem? And is this a painkiller or is this a vitamin, which I explained before? Like does someone, when they see the product, sort of understand the value, aha, or do you have to go and do a lot of like value selling and the rest of it for someone to derive the value? That's the first thing. The second thing that I look for a product is when someone starts to use it upfront, is it easily discoverable? Like is the value discoverable? One, like, do I see what the value is? And is the product helpful? I.e., does it actually help the individual that it's targeting be more productive and successful in their job? And then I think I mentioned this the last time, but what I look for in the product is what is the emotional response that the early users have to it? Is it a rational response where I had this problem and it solved the problem? That's terrific. But can I pick up on some gestalt or some passion or some emotion from the user where they're like, I really love this thing. And normally what that means is it's solving something that has really bothered them or allows them to do something that they couldn't do before. So those are kind of the things that I look for in a product. And then obviously I try to figure out, is there some core differentiation? You know, if you look at a given space, unless it's a brand new market, you know, Pendo is different. The market didn't exist at the time, but there are lots of markets and there are lots of investments in those markets. And so the question is, what is the difference and what is the hook that someone is going to basically understand, okay, I should look at this vis-a-vis what I already have for the following reason, or if there are two or three players in the space, is it relatively easy to drive a sort of Mack truck through what that differentiation are. So those are the kind of things that I look for. That's that's interesting. You mentioned driving a Mack truck through the differentiation. You know, how how big is that? We hear these factors of, you know, it can't be incremental. It needs to be exponentially bigger, right? How big does the differentiation really need to be? I think it depends if you're creating a category or you're entering an existing category. If you're entering an existing category, 
It could be moderately better, you know, tends to be more modern, more easy to use, more flexible and pricing and the rest of it. Look at the email marketing space. Like, you know, if Clay, is it Clavia or Clavo? Like six years ago, a company said, I've got another email marketing system. I've been like, oh my God, how many email marketing systems are there? But, you know, they just raised money at $4 billion valuation. So in certain markets, they're large enough and there's enough demand where if you're clever in terms of how you get to those customers and make them successful without a ton of differentiation, you can be successful. In other markets, I like to think of differentiation in a way that is meaningful enough that I can drive core messaging about it. I think David Sachs at Craft Ventures, who was at Yammer and I think PayPal before, uh, he wrote, what's the one single miracle you have to pull off as a startup to get to the next stage? And so when looking at the product, what I often ask people is, what's the one single miracle you think you need to pull off to sort of achieve, you know, your goals and desires of the next year? Yeah, interesting. You know, the other thing you mentioned that I wanted to dig into a little bit is you, you talked about, you know, at Bonfire, you're, you're an investor with product, right? Product already exists. In the case of Pendo, you, you were an angel investor and I, I believe invested, you know, before we had product. In the Bonfire case, where, where are people raising money to, you know, from to get to that product stage? And it's interesting, you called the first institutional money. I think you'd still consider it seed, right? So the angel rounds kind of precede these days. Yeah, I mean, I think what's changed the last three to five years is there's a lot of people doing angel, right? Friends and family. And then there are pre-seed investors that go earlier, right? So there's a plethora of capital available. And so... You know, usually at those rounds, people are investing in an idea and a team, right? With the concept or wireframes around the product. We have the advantage of seeing, if you will, I guess an MVP. You know, we're looking at companies that have 10 to 25K in MRR. So it's still very early, but it helps me understand how do they think about product, Right. And I think you can quickly see at my stage, like, do these people get product? Do they understand UX? Are they thoughtful about their choices? And you can at least have a meaningful conversation to say, if I were to give you $3 million, how would you think about your roadmap? And whether what they say is correct or not, that for me is sort of most instructive. Like, how are they thinking about prioritizing what they're building, you know, for their market and the different personas they serve? And I would say that more than anything else, like, look, you can have technical people that don't know go to market and we can, there are multiple SaaS playbooks to run. You can have a team that hasn't hired executives before. It's fine. We can work with them on that front. It's kind of hard to teach a founding team if they aren't thoughtful about the priorities and decisions they're making from a product perspective. So I'm sure that's the question you, you asked. No, I, I think it, it leads me to kind of the follow-up question, which I think could be interesting. So, you know, the angel pre-seed round is done, like you you mentioned in a lot, in most cases on team and idea, right? And now when you were investing at Bonfire in, in that, you know, million and a half, two million, three million dollar seed round, uh, it's kind of funny since I've been around a while, that seems like, a, you know, if I think back 20 years, that's a big seed round, but I digress. So you're you're investing at that. Now, on top of team and idea, you're now layering product, right? So you can really look at how they've built this early product and to some extent, 
customer feedback, right? What customers think, what they're using it, because you're you're probably looking for not just product, but a, at least a few early customers too. Yeah, I mean, it is rare that a company has perfect product market fit when they're raising from us. They have product market inclination. Inclination, I like that. And the goal, well, they have signals, yeah. but you know the signal to noise ratio is high, and you got to get beyond like, don't give me five customers that are all your buddies, right? And the goal from seed to A is to sort of find that fit and that first go-to-market motion sort of around that. So, you know, normally they've got a first version of a product. They've got, call it, if it's on the large, you know, if it's more of a mid-market enterprise, they've got, you know, five to 10 customers. If it's more transactional, they may have hundreds. And so I think the thing for me at seed, what I've learned is, and I could be different than other investors is, do I kind of love them about 20 minutes in the first time I talk to them? Am I kind of emotionally attracted to the problem they're solving, how they're thinking about it and the people? And then I use logic to back out of it. What I have found is there are plenty of things I've looked at where logically it makes sense and the data makes sense, et cetera. But emotionally, I just, I don't, it doesn't get me that excited. So I actually use excitement to pull me in and logic and data to back out. And every time that I've done that, invested on gut and emotion with logic to back out, as opposed to using logic to convince myself that I'm mostly not interesting, it's been successful. Whereas, you know, look, I met you all, I knew your background, I knew the problem you were solving. I had run product at Salesforce. I knew how hard it was to build guides. It never got built. Devs never wanted to do. Designers would give me walkthroughs. They'd always get cut in scope. And I was like, all right, that makes sense. You know, now that's pre-seed or angel where you can do that. So, you know, what I generally look for is who is this team? Because we're going to spend a lot of time together. Do I like them? Do they like me? As you know, Eric, I'm an acquired taste. Uh, <laughs> You know, what is the problem that they're like solving? Like a fine scotch. Yes, yes, like a fine scotch. What is the problem they're solving? And what I want to understand is why do they have to solve that? Like why? Like, you know, why did they go tackle this problem? How did they do that emotionally and rationally better than others? And then show me traction. Let me take a look at the product. And then the conversation is, okay, with 3 to $4 million, how would you, you know, manage these trade-offs? That's sort of the conversation. So I want to dig into product market fit, but before I do, I wanted to talk about some of the stuff you just touched on, uh, but frame that around the pitch deck. So what's essential in a pitch deck to you? Who are you? Because it's all about team to start with. What's the problem you're solving? And like existentially, why must this be solved? What's your product? Show me your traction. That's about it. I mean, it's seed, right? It's not like, there's not a lot of financials to dig into and the rest of it. And show me an example in the deck of like two or three customers. Okay. And you said you use logic and metrics and data to back out. So what product metrics do you look for in the pitch deck or do you? It's tricky at our stage. Now it depends. There are those that, let's say it's a, a bottoms up startup where it's usage based and they monetize later as opposed to sell up front. And so if it's a um, usage deck, you know, usage model, we can start looking at top of funnel log, you know, MAU or WAU or DAU 
And on the others, what's the tricky is they haven't had customers for that long. It's less than a year, right? And what I get them to do post-seed is really look into ENPS, right? Not like, are people getting value out of this product? And will they tell other people about it? And it's really important because uh, so much of software success from C to A and B is how much you can drift or draft off of your first set of customers that either love or are neutral about your product. Because if they love your product, then they'll talk about it to their peers. So really digging into ENPS is what I kind of look at from a metric perspective. Now let's jump back to product market fit, you know, because like you said, you're, when you're investing, you have product market inclination, I believe you described it. How do you advise your founders through establishing product market fit? Yeah, I spent a lot of time on that, right? When people ask me like, well, Brett, you've done a lot. How do you describe what you do? I'm like, well, I kind of like to think of my expertise as the intersection of product and go to market. Um, and they're intertwined. So from C to A, when you think about an A round investor, right? Each person that invests at different rounds wants level different levels of stuff de-risked. And so from C to A is about nailing what we call motion one. So when we go raise A, we have to explain that we have built product one that we've been selling to buyer one and market one. And, you know, and that is our motion. So a lot of the time to get there is really experimenting around messaging and core ICP. Who do we think our ICP is? Let's narrow down a range. Let's test with them and let's zero in on a core ICP or ideal client, you know, customer profile. What size company and what vertical and what buyer, primary buyer and secondary buyer. Once we think we have that, I have a messaging exercise. I've got a blog on LinkedIn about it. It's like a page. It's just basically called, what do you do? One of the challenges with all the technologies available, SDR, like outreach, sales loft, email, phone calls, marketing tools, is people start doing stuff on blast without kind of nailing, what the hell do we do? And so what I ask people to do in a workshop is, I say for your core ICP, tell me what it is your product offers that allows that ICP to do something new that they cannot do today, better of what they currently do today, or as good as what they're doing today, but more. Because in the end, from a value prop perspective, it's either got to be something new, has to be something better, or something more. And then I ask them within that, say, what is the value of you doing that new, better, more, you know, for your ICP? And what's interesting is people often like, oh, I got this newfangled, da, da, da. And they realize a lot of their messaging is kind of in the more or better stuff and not really new. You know, more is about productivity. Better is a little differentiated productivity. New is interesting. It allows an ICP to do something they couldn't do before but really tackle that. And so then what we start talking about when we talk about our product, whether it's on SDR calls, on our website, et cetera, do not talk about what you do, but focus on your ICP about what you enable them to do. So line our messaging, our roadmap, and our sales messages there. The other part 
of that to nail, it's not applicable for all of them, is, is there a PQL motion or not? Is there an element of your motion? And by right? PQL, you mean product qualified lead? Yeah. Is there an inbound motion? Right? Is there an inbound SMB motion where somebody would actually go into your product, start using them, what we call like the early days of Pendo and assisted purchase? Or is this more of an upmarket perspective where we need to go outbound and sell the value of? It's important to understand. And then, of course, I get all my startups to sign up for Pendo, right? Uh, start making product of science and less of an art. So that's kind of what we do. And then it enables you, I mean, your outcome, right? You talked about risk mitigation where you guys are in at the seed stage and now you're getting people ready for, in essence, to do an A round too. I mean, obviously it's about growing the company, but assuming we're talking about high growth SaaS companies, they're going to need to raise again after your round. Yeah, it's triple, um, triple, triple, double, double, right? So we yeah, got to get to yeah. the first triple, or not the first, get them to a million with a motion that works. The A person wants to put money in with the motion you're already running to do the next two triples, one to three, three to nine. Before we start talking about like market segment three or product three or different buyer. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, post kind of when they're getting ready for an A now, you've, you've helped them figure out messaging, right? How to position the product to their uh, ideal customer profile or ideal buyer. And then you're trying to help them have the right product metrics, right? You mentioned you know, net promoter score, NPS is being really important to you. And at this point, I think you want to make sure they have more of those product metrics in the deck for the A round, right? The daily active user growth or monthly active, whatever is most applicable to their business, but seeing those active user growths in the, in the time slot that makes the most sense for them. That stuff then gets layered in as yeah. you're helping them build to the A, right? Yeah. And I think by the time they raise the A, the other key metric, it's not necessarily a product metric, but it is the most important SaaS metric from an evaluation perspective other than revenue growth, which is net retention rate, mm-hmm. right? You can go on, you can see that the most highly valued multiple SaaS companies are the ones with the highest net retention rate. And you can't have a great net retention rate if your product sucks, right? So hard. <laughs> right? So you go look at NRR first and then you can dig into it. So I think what people want to know is net retention, product reviews online, ENPS, referenceable customers, and then we can go into activity and usage. Makes sense. So now, as you talk to startups about their future, you know, how do you encourage them to think about that? How do you encourage them to think about growth? How do you encourage them to think about roadmap and direction? You know, there are different types of startups, but it's rare the startup that starts is like, I want to go solve this one tactical problem. I'll build it and it's done. Often they have a vision to solve a problem that they see as systemic and they're committed to solving that for a long period of time. But then they have to put that aside because they got to go deliver with three developers what they can and are very tactical. And so the big man, Mr. Benioff at Salesforce had a lot of very interesting sayings, but in terms of thinking about product vision and product roadmap, he always would say, Brett in this case or anybody, Never overestimate what you could do in a year. So i.e., let's focus on the core things we must get done. You know, the vital few as opposed to the useless many. So you have, if you got 10 developers, you have two scrum teams instead of, you know, five teams of two. So you can get something done. But more importantly, he said, never underestimate what you can do in a decade. 
Like these were interesting conversations when we were like, oh, product's too hard to use. Oh, the lead model's broken. Oh, PRM doesn't work. Oh, forecasting's broken for the third time. And Mark would be like, we need to invest in platform and visual force. And we're like, what the hell? Platform? I need to, you know. But of course he was right. And so in thinking through, once we have some initial fit, is I want product founders and founders to think about a long-term vision of the problem they're solving and how they balance off what they're delivering tactically versus what investments they need to make to make sure they can you know, deliver towards longer-term systemic major product improvements or pivots down the road. And so what I tell them to do is I'll often run them through a V2Mom exercise. I'll say, look, in two to three years, when somebody describes your company and product, what do you want them to say about you? What is it that you are? What is it that they love about you? And then chart out from their back sort of a short and long-term path of what you would need to go deliver. And then from a roadmap, you know, spend a bunch of time with Brian and the team there at Pendo, which is let's be very intentional from a roadmap perspective of who our core personas are today and tomorrow and the proper trade-offs of what we're delivering. I think a key thing for companies to think through is really understanding, are you an app? Are you a platform? Are you an app that can unearth a platform? Start thinking about that earlier, right? I think so much of software today, as opposed to 10 years ago, or the UX is somewhat of an amalgamation of a lot of shared services, all you know. And so thinking about integration early, if you talk to any of my founders, they'd be like, oh my God, I'm gonna change Brett's name to API, API, API. And then the last thing that I never ever let product founders or product teams off the hook for is what I call the itties, right? Scalability, quality, reliability. Like in this world, as you know, if it's not up, if it's not relatively bug-free and it's not fast, it doesn't matter, right? So it's kind of like Ricky Bobby, you know, like if you're not, (laughs) you know, if you're not fast, fast and reliable, then you suck. It's, you know, it's probably the case, right? Something like that. So, you know, one thing I wanted to you to clarify a little bit, you talked about understand if you're an app or a platform or an app replacing a platform. Can you explain that a little more, what you mean? Sure. I mean, obviously, out of the gate, it's easier if you're a company that's lower down in the tech stack as opposed to higher in the UX stack. You know, if you're a Kubernetes, you're a platform, right? If you're MailChimp, you're a an app. The question is, how do you become bigger than what you have built, right? And in that mind, how do you think through from an integration perspective? And really the way that guides you this is go to your personas and look at their workflows and understand in their daily or current workflow and what they're currently using, how would they incorporate your product within that workflow in a natural way? Like I see all this time, oh, I'm this, I'm this, like guys or gals, you're not gonna be the fit. There are some products where you will be a screen that they will look at. They will go to you. You may be a product where they're never going to go to you, but they want to consume it somewhere else. So really kind of understanding that first and foremost to understand where you are. And so what I call the UX paradigm, do you become a main screen in which other people want to consume other services? 
and then you need to invest in APIs early to bring those other services of data or user interflows in, or are they going to consume you somewhere else? Well, you'd better go have integrations to whatever those might be. That's one. Two is really, is there an opportunity for you early on, you will draft it around other people's ecosystems? Who are the products you need to get integrate to such that if you could get access to their customers, it's a much more efficient route to market. And as long as the integration works well and people think it's clever, great. But at some point, you may want to pivot to where you build your ecosystem. And so how do you think about what are other set of services that you could bring in and integrate into you? And that's when you start to become a platform. I mean, look at Salesforce. Salesforce is, I don't know, worth a couple hundred billion dollars. What is Salesforce.com? Salesforce.com is a meta customization platform, first and foremost, that has a ton of apps that somebody integrates into. If you look at the average Salesforce customer, they're using 10 to 15 apps integrated or written on top of the Salesforce platform. A couple of those apps are Salesforces that you bought from Salesforce. And where did Salesforce start? It started as a four-screen, non-customizable SMB, SFA app for tracking opportunities and leads. So it's quite an evolution. So everyone's path and evolution is different, but be thoughtful about what you think the approach is there. So that's how I think about it. Now, to tie this back to you know you investing and hearing in the pitch deck, you, you talked about wanting to hear from an your potential investments, you wanted to hear about how they would spend two or $3 million. Is this the kind of story you want to hear? Like them taking you out, not only what they're doing today, but where they see the vision 10 years from now and how, whether they're a platform or taking advantage of this ecosystem or starting as an app that moves into a platform. Do you want to hear their thoughts on that? Is that part of your investment kind of criteria? It's a little early. It's a lot to ask. Okay. I mean, you and I are at Spring Chickens. Hopefully, I can look at what somebody's doing and look and understand what that opportunity is. So there may be some of those discussions, but I think it's important to understand, look, the roadmap conversation really is what can we do within the next two years? And look, at my at our stage, these diners are busy. They're like five to eight people. You look at their calendar, it's a lot of time. So it's only fair to have, to have having so many free-form discussions. Now, their answers in terms of what that P&L is and where they're going to invest and what they're going to build, it's 60% directionally correct. It's not perfect. Anybody can put a spreadsheet model. We really do that more. And then once we fund the deal, you kind of chuck it aside and go, okay, what's the real truth? Let's get going. But it's really just for me to understand how they think. Because you know at Pendo and your other startups, Eric, it's all about, I've got X resources against Y opportunity. And what is the framework for which we make decisions around trade-offs of what we're going to do and not do? And that's really what I'm trying to understand. And then as part of it, this is me selling to them, where do they need the most help? And can I provide them help from my experiences or other founders or other resources we have in my network? Yeah. So talk to me about market spaces. Like what's interesting to you right now? What's exciting? What do you think is the future? There are a number of venture capital firms that will go out and write like, this is where the future is going. And these are the eight markets. And I'm an expert. I have my opinions. I'll share some of them. We have the belief that like the founders know this better. 
So as founders come in, you know, we will, we're a little more open as long as it's within sort of the business to business sphere. But in terms of areas that, you know, I'm really interested in. So one is uh, the future of health. If we think about the way in which, you know, virtual health is being provided, remote and digitization, it's just a massive growth in what I see as a much better way in which care could be provided for people with chronic or mental health issues. Uh, and the tools that they use, the systems that they use are archaic. And more importantly, I'm a big fan, and I've got a blog coming out next week, an investment that will be announced next week around how to do a much better job around sort of data-driven care, you know, or measurement-based care. So I think future of health is a big one. And we've made a number of investments in that space. I love the product-led world, right? I started with Pendo and others. I believe that those with the best products and software will win big. And so for me, anything that's in or around the building and monetization of building amazing software products is going to be, continue to be a very big category and one that I'm very passionate about. There's the future of work. It's sort of a generic name. I think in my mind, when COVID is over, I think some things won't be the same. You know, I don't believe you're going to build large uh, high rises and your workspace is going to be somewhere that lives within a 30 mile radius of a large high rise. And so in my mind, I'm calling it a tetherless workplace where you're not stuck to a location. I still believe you will go to locations for whiteboarding sessions, offsites, et cetera. I just think in this world, we need Neve solutions to drive productivity. Because, you know, the interesting thing happened with COVID in the last nine months. The world kind of fell apart, democracy kind of fell apart, but SaaS is at an all-time high. Why? Well, for those fortunate enough to be in white-collar software jobs, they became more productive. Yes, it was lonelier and tougher, but you don't go to an office. You don't have to shoot the shit for five hours. You don't have to wait to go home when you're supposed to spend time with kids to actually get your work done. You don't do commute and the rest of it. Now you have to figure out boo-hoo how to deal with like, you know, you know, Zoom insomnia, but people are actually very productive. Yeah. In terms of how do you motivate employees in that new world? How do you manage them? How do you check in on their health? I think there's a huge opportunity there. There's what I call e-commerce 3.0. I think it's very clear. And as we've seen over the last nine months, and I think yesterday was the most ever sold in Cyber Monday, you know, we still believe there's a lot of outdated stacks for pick the picks and shovels for what means to be successful in e-commerce. Uh, we've made a number of investments in that area and we'll continue to. Like one of our companies, Chow Now, COVID hit. And before COVID hit, people were like, oh, Chow Now, which provides the software to restaurants to do online ordering and pickup, but didn't do the delivery, was kind of like poo-pooed. Well, its business went up 10X when every restaurant overnight had to figure out, you know, buy online, you know, pick up a person or have delivered. And then another one that, you know, I really am spending a lot of time looking at is we have a lot of hype around AI, analytics, ML, RPA. And I think there's an opportunity for, for that to be democratic. Like how do you move that from the hands of a select few specialists to becoming core to every professional's daily motion? And so in my mind, I'm looking for companies that can enable mere mortals to like 
leverage data science without being a data scientist um, to be big. So those are the areas that I'm spending a lot of time in, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. So thank you. This has been awesome. Got a couple final questions, kind of change the subject to you. What's your favorite product? Well, given that I'm 10 and two in my fantasy football league, <laughs> and even had to make some moves yesterday because of COVID and the rest of it, and still just waxed my opponent. There's an app called Fantasy Pros that links to whatever archaic, whether you're on Yahoo or ESPN, knows your specific rules your commissioner has, and just basically looks at all the players out there and says, here's who you should pick up, here's who you should drop, here's who you should start, here's why. And the UX is very good and the rest of it. And one could say it's cheating. I don't think it is. So uh, in terms of a product that delights me, and it's like, I don't know, maybe it's 50, 75 bucks a year, but like it's the best thing money can buy. Fantasy Pros. Football. So that's your scouting organization, Fantasy Pros. Fantasy Pros. No, I'll show, I don't know if you play fantasy, I'll show it to you. It's dashboards are delightful, when to start, who to start, why. You know, I, I spend way too much time on fantasy football and it, it provides me confidence. No, I, I used to spend way too much time playing it, which is why I haven't played in a few years. So uh. take a look at fantasy pros. The way I think about it is once you start to be pretty good at blackjack, you know, there's rules to play. And you know, anytime blackjack, you decide you're better. Like I'm going to sit on 16, like, or I'm not going to take another card. And you just, you screw up and you screw up the shoe. You're like, ah, like fantasy pros like, well, I don't really know if I agree with them. I'm going to start this guy. And it just provides, it removes uh, the self blame part of the uh, fantasy football process. So as I said earlier, I like a product that has rational value prop. Who do I pick? Who do I start, et cetera? Who do I draft? And then emotional. How do I not blame myself for my vict- for my losses? Although I do take credit for the victories. <laughs> That's kind of my favorite product. I will I will have to check that out. Maybe that'll get me back into playing next year because I would do Fantasy Pro in my in my head or on spreadsheets, and uh, you could you could spend some time. One one final question for you: three words to describe yourself. I think the more interesting question, Eric, is what three words would you use? Um, I would say that I am direct. I would say that I am a framer. And by that, I mean that I care less about what the answer is to any decision the rest of it. I'm more interested in terms of how are you framing your trade-offs in the decision process. And then I like to think myself as funny and humorous. There are many in tech that have been as successful or more successful than me that sometimes let that success go to their heads. You know, as anything it said about COVID is you and I are incredibly fortunate to do what we do. And so I hope not to take myself and others too seriously as we go about, you know, our daily pursuits. Those are three words I would use. What would you use, Eric? Well, you know, I don't know that you're wrong with all any of those words. Uh, if I was to add one, I, I might add thoughtful. Oh, very sweet. And you could, you could, I mean, not, not meaning it to be sweet necessarily. No, you see yeah. how you pause when yeah. thinking about questions. Well, I can't, one cannot call themselves, I am thoughtful without coming across as an ass, right? <laughs> when you are direct, you cannot, you know, also beat your own horn. Well, thank you, sir. Thanks for being here. All right, Eric.